The reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter, his first letter to the Thessalonians. And we're reading from the second chapter, starting at verse 13. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, and um, welcome again uh, to St. Helens. There are a few faces today that I don't recognise, or some that I've only met the once. Um, so, as a reminder, or for the first time, my name is Andrew. Um, I enjoyed in Augustine's prayer that he prayed for the two Andrews. Uh, we've got Andrew Crapong and myself, Andrew Holt, uh, on team, part of the ministry team here at St. Helens. But yeah, again, well done. Um, it was hammering down with rain at nine o'clock, and I said, Lord, please stop the rain at the time people are going to be leaving their houses to come to church. And he answered that. So um, praise God, uh, because there are always fewer people in church when it's raining. And uh, well done for making it this morning. Let's hope it doesn't rain on the way home. Let's pray, and then we'll take a look at this passage together. Father God, thank you for your great grace to us in so many ways. Uh, the small ways. Um, we thank you for the rain and for the good that it does and we thank you for when it doesn't rain on us um, and that we can be dry. We thank you for this place where we can gather freely, safely and we can hear your words and we pray that you would, as we've just sung, that you would teach us, that you would open our eyes, that this truth which is able to free us would work in our hearts this morning and would change us, and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may wish to follow along, and um, we are still in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Toyin, maybe if you just turn me down a little bit. I, sorry, the, the um, microphone system's been a bit dodge today, a little bit echoey. So, um, hopefully this is as good as it can be. Well, as we begin, uh, just a, a fairly simple question. We've titled this series in 1 Thessalonians, Authentic Church. Authentic Church. And a church, if it is an authentic church, will presumably be made up of 
authentic Christians. So what is an authentic Christian? How do you recognise one? What would you think if you asked you know, people in the street or in your office or members of your family or your friends, what is an authentic Christian? I think you'd probably get a, an interesting range of answers. Perhaps it would be, you know, the Christians are the kind of people who work in the soup kitchen, um, who run the Christmas and Easter fair in the church. They're nice people. They're good people. They don't swear. They don't take the Lord's name in vain. They're all around just kind of nice and kind and gentle. Or you might get that they say that, well, authentic Christians come to church every Sunday. That's what marks out an authentic Christian. They come to church, they say the right things, they take communion, they pray, they read their Bibles, and that's what makes someone an authentic Christian. Of course, you might get people who say that, well, I recognize a Christian because they're judgmental, holier than thou, and uh, thoroughly annoying. But let's hope not. Paul has a really unusual an unexpected answer to the question, what is an authentic Christian in this passage today? We've seen that the Thessalonians, they're a young church, they're a new church, and Paul is unremittingly encouraging towards them. He is thoroughly encouraged by them and wants to encourage them to keep doing what they're doing more and more. And he says here, we thank God, verse 13, page 1186, if you want to follow along, no need, but if you want to, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Okay, Paul, well, you're saying that. How do you know? How do you know that they accepted it? How do you know these guys are authentic Christians? Verse 14, for, or you might say because, because you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from their own people. That is, Jewish churches persecuted by Jews and Gentile churches persecuted by Gentiles. There's no anti-Semitism here, don't read that in. But Paul says that people, these Christians, he says, I know you are authentic Christians because you are suffering for your faith. Not the Christmas and Easter fair, um, not turning up to church every Sunday, not even reading their Bibles and praying, but suffering for their faith. Now, why would they do that? Well, to be prepared to suffer, you've got to know why you're suffering. And so firstly, we see why they are prepared to suffer. Verse 13 again. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. Now, in the last week's passage, if you were here, you may remember. If not, I'll fill you in. Um, Paul was basically authenticating his ministry to the Thessalonians. So Paul and his companions were only in Thessalonica for a fairly short time. They were persecuted so severely that they had to leave or likely they would have been killed and they moved on and the Thessalonian church continued to be persecuted and no doubt people were speaking against Paul and his companions. And we get this repeated phrase, it comes five times throughout chapters 1 and 2 where Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, you know what we were like amongst you. You know what our ministry was like amongst you. You know 
what we were like. And in verses uh, 1 to 12 of chapter 2, Paul is authenticating his ministry. He says, you can trust us. We're the kind of people who you can trust like a mother, like a father. We sacrificed ourselves for you, expecting nothing in return. We suffered in order for you to receive the message. They didn't ask for you know, money from these people. They didn't insist on privileges. They came in, they served them, they suffered, and then they left. And they expected nothing in return. And so Paul says, when people speak against us, trust us. But more than that, Paul wants to say, it's not about just trusting us, but you receive that word not as a human word from trustworthy people. And Paul and his companions showed themselves to be trustworthy people, but when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, yes, trustworthy people, but you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. And so if we take out those little clarifying statements of um, not from us, not a human word, you get a very simple statement. Paul says, Thessalonians, I thank God continually for you because when you received the word of God, you accepted it as the word of God. Authentic Christians accept the word of God as the word of God. Now, hopefully that's not too much of a surprise for many of us. And I imagine there's a, a bit of a spectrum in the room of how you feel about the Bible. And perhaps you've just popped in for the first time this morning. And perhaps someone sort of encouraged you to come along. Perhaps you've never opened a Bible and read it for yourself. And perhaps like uh, one of my friends, I remember him saying, I suspect he was making this up. He said, I just got kicked out of Waterstones for putting the Bibles in the fiction section alongside Harry Potter. That's, view of his, that's his view of the Bible. It's completely made up. So view one, the Bible's completely made up, just throw it out. Why even pay attention to it at all? And then there's another view which Paul wants us to have, which is the Bible is, first to last, every word, the Word of God. Genesis to Revelation, 66 books, spoken, written down by human authors. But the Apostle Peter tells us human authors guided by the Holy Spirit so that as they wrote, they were writing... God's words. So that as we read, we can be confident we've got God's words. So at one end of the scale, we've got Bible completely made up, load of old myths and legends, we can completely ignore it at no cost to ourselves. And at the other end, the Bible is God's word. The word from the creator of the universe, who made us, who knows us, who loves us, who is for us and not against us. And if that's true, if that's what this book is, then surely we want to pay very close attention to what it says. To love it, to delight in it, to rejoice in it, and to submit to it. That means we're going to trust it even when we don't like what it says. Because I suspect often many of us are pushed into more of a middling position, which some Christians are very open. Some people who would call themselves Christians are very open that this is the view that they hold. They would say the Bible is inspired writings by holy people from the past who got some things right but some things wrong and it's up to us today to discern which things are right and which things are wrong. Pick and choose, essentially. Take the bits you like and then dismiss the bits you don't like. And it sounds quite appealing, that view, doesn't it? 
It's a very postmodern 20th century consumer culture point of view. You know, we're able to pick and choose pretty much everything we want. Go to the supermarket of your choice, drink the beer of your choice, drink the wine of your choice, choose from a range of you know, 25 different peanut butters, 150 different kinds of cereals or whatever it is in our supermarkets. But if we do that, and I searched for this quote, trust me, it's a quote, if you can find it, give it to me. Um, Tim Keller, very often perceptive, he said this, if you will not let the Bible be law to you. That is, if you will not submit yourself to the Bible, if you will pick and choose, then it can never be love to you. Now, it needs a bit of unpacking. And he goes on to say, imagine this. Imagine that on a day when you're feeling modern, you read through the Bible and there's a bit, New Testament or Old Testament, that, to be honest, you don't like. It offends your modern sensibilities. Perhaps it's something about judgment. Or perhaps it's something about the place of sex. And as a a modern person, you go, well, I don't like that bit. I like the stuff about forgiveness and love and being accepted by God, but I don't like that bit, so I'll pick this bit and I'll leave that other bit behind. And he says, if you get into that kind of mindset with the Bible, then when you need the Bible to be love for you, it won't be. Because then on a day when you really don't feel, when you're feeling wretched for your sin, when you're feeling like a failure, when you need the Word of God to encourage you, when you find it hard to believe that God could love someone like you, then you need to know that when you read the Bible, it's God's Word. And so that when you're finding it hard to believe that, you can, that God can love you, you can believe His words when He says, I do love you. We can believe Him even when we don't feel like it. But if we're in the habit of picking and choosing, then, well, how can we know for certain? We can never be sure. If the Bible, if we will not let the Bible be law to us, then it can never be loved. Does that make sense? So we need to allow ourselves to submit to the Bible in order for it to be the love that we want. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, that's all very well, so we just have to persuade ourselves that it's true And then once we've persuaded ourselves that it's true, then great, we can submit to it. Well, no. It's a case of if the Bible is true, in the bits where we can be absolutely sure. So we want to start with Jesus. Did the Lord Jesus come to this earth? Did he live, die, and rise again? Yes, he did. And what was Jesus' view of the Bible, Old Testament and New? It was that this is the Word of God. There's a little book I've um, sold many of them before, Andrew Wilson. It's called Unbreakable. Um, I know Tamsin loves this book. She read it, sent her a little Andrew Wilson reading spree. He's a brilliant author. We've got them at the back there, one pound each. Uh, If you've not bought it, then you might want to pick one of those up. Um, And if I know many people have bought it, but perhaps you haven't read it, it's a great book to read. It is what is Jesus' view of the Bible? Because Jesus saw all of Scripture, Old Testament, that was his Bible. And he spent three years on earth and he never told us that any of it wasn't true. He, at every stage, affirmed it. He said, if anyone takes away one jot or tittle of the Old Testament word, then they will not be in the kingdom. They will be condemned. But heaven and earth, he said, will pass away. My words will not pass away. And then he commissions the New Testament writers to write the Gospels. Now, I'm going to just do one quick cross-reference. You may want to follow me here because you may be saying, all right, That was Jesus' Bible. That was the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? 
And if we turn over, so I managed to cut my thumb yesterday uh, while washing a pair of scissors. And so uh, it's uh, hardest to turn the pages in the Bible. That's the plaster on my thumb for the very observant. Uh, Paul says, uh, sorry, Peter says this, page 1224. This is to Peter. And there's this lovely little phrase, you get this lovely little insight into inter-apostolic relations between Peter and Paul. From verse 15, page 1224, verse 15. Peter says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things which are hard to understand. That's reassuring, isn't it? The Apostle Peter read the Apostle Paul's letters and said, some of this is hard to understand, which you may feel as well reading Galatians or Romans. Peter says, Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures. So follow Peter's logic here. Peter is saying, over here, we've got what are commonly accepted to be the scriptures, what Jesus called the scriptures, the Old Testament. So no one's disputing those are the scriptures. And then over here, we've got Paul's writings. And Peter says, unstable and ignorant people distort these writings as they do those other scriptures. What is Peter's view of Paul's writing? Paul's writing is scripture. The Apostle Peter, during his lifetime, during the lifetime of the Apostles, says the Lord has given such wisdom through the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul and to the other Apostles in their writings that Paul's writing should be considered scripture along with the Old Testament scriptures. And of course, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed, breathed out by God through the Holy Spirit and profitable for teaching, instruction, correction, and training in all righteousness. We're back to 1 Thessalonians. Old Testament, New Testament. We need to trust that this word is God's word, as did the Thessalonians. When you receive the word of God, you accepted it as the word of God. And they really needed to know that because of the persecution that they would receive. See, true Christians accept the word of God as the word of God. And we know when Christians have really accepted the word of God because they will begin to suffer for it. And it's, a, it's an unusual reference to suffering here. Normally, in the New Testament, we get warnings. Warnings that we will suffer. Jesus says, no disciple is above his master. If I have suffered, you will suffer also. But this is a continuation of Paul's thanks. Verse 13, we thank God continually that... Verse 14, you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your people the same thing that they did. Paul wants the Thessalonians to see this as a comfort. He says, look, again, the opponents are probably coming to you and saying, you Gentiles, you're not from God's people. You're not Jews. And... Paul and his mates were only around for a short while. How do you know you're really Christians? How do you know you're really a church? And Paul says you are really a church because you are suffering from your people the same kind of persecution that the first Christians, Jewish Christians, suffered from their people. And they are suffering the same kind of persecution that 
from those, verse 15, who killed the Lord Jesus. And those who killed the Lord Jesus, verse 15, and the prophets, and also drove us out. Paul wants to say, authentic Christians will stand in a line of those who have suffered for being faithful to God. And that that is a privilege. Around the world, uh, many people, as you will know, suffer far more deeply than we do. Um, I went to the Barnabas Fund website, which is, uh, they, they give news of persecuted Christians around the world, and read of two Libyan brothers who were executed for distributing Christian literature. I've distributed Christian literature at times, um, given it to friends, put it in letters sometimes, handed it out on the streets, and sometimes people said no, and sometimes people said no rudely, and sometimes people stared at me, and sometimes people took the leaflet and then threw it pointedly um, in the next bin, and it's a little bit sad, and I was a tiny bit offended by that. But no one's ever hit me, no one's ever persecuted me, and no one has ever tried to execute me for it. But that is what our brothers and sisters around the world face. And when we are prepared to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus, perhaps when we mention it at work, we mention that we're a Christian and people start treating us differently. I remember again very low level persecution um, at at, at university a long time ago now. There was a guy on my course um, who was a good mate, you know, we used to chat. And then one time we were out with the Christian Union and I wandered up to him and invited him along to an event. From that day forward, he never spoke to me again, avoided me. If if we were in a group, I'd walk up to the group and he would stop talking until I left the conversation. Low level, minor, but much more painful when it comes from friends or family close to us, as it can. And difficult if it's in the workplace, when people treat us differently, when they stop the joking, when we walk up, when they say things behind our backs, when we're not part of the in crowd but when that happens when that happens we stand in a line with these faithful brothers and sisters with the faithful Jewish churches before them who were persecuted for their faith with the prophets who were killed for being faithful to God with those Libyan brothers who we will see in heaven and whatever quite the Bible's doctrine of heavenly rewards is, those guys are going to be close to the throne for what they've done. Closer than me, and I will praise God for that fact, because they are heroes. They are heroes of the faith to go go through what they go through. And we get to be associated with them when we suffer for the name of Christ. At the Renew conference recently that Steve and I attended, Brian Elphick from Toxteth in Liverpool, a very rough bit of Liverpool, preached a wonderful sermon about the persecution that will come to us as Christians. Uh, speaking of, of Jesus, saying that they may kill us, but they can't throw the, the, the they can't kill the soul. And he said this. He said, "It is the privilege of my life to have my name mentioned in the same sentence as the Lord Jesus." I mean, think about that. Isn't that amazing? This creation was made by and for and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one for whom this entire creation exists. Everything is to bring him glory. 
And when someone calls me a Jesus freak or a bit of a weirdo because I'm a Christian, I am associated with that Lord Jesus who one day will return from heaven and everyone will see his glory. And on that day, if we have been prepared to suffer for the name of Jesus, if we've accepted the word of God as the word of God, if we've been faithful to the end, then everyone will see that we are with him and what a wonderful day that will be. Well, that's our prayer for ourselves. Obviously, there's something of a challenge in these words. Do we accept the word of God as the word of God? When there are difficult bits, and there are difficult bits, it's my habit to try to read through the Bible each year and do it in sort of 20 or 30 minutes a day. And there are bits, some bits of the Old Testament, every year I get to those and I go, Lord, I don't like this bit. I really don't like it. I'm a child of the 20th and now well, not a child of the 20th, I was a child of the late 20th century. I grew up in that environment and my sensitivities are offended by some bits of the Bible. But I know God. I know that he is good. I look at the Lord Jesus and I can trust him. And I say, I don't like that bit. And this other bit is hard to live out. But I know that you are good. I know that you are for me and so I will trust you. Will we trust, will we accept the word of God? That is our goal. And will we be prepared to suffer for it? In another of his letters, Paul says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Even just low level. But so there's that question. If everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, then if there is no single, tiny little bit of our life where people treat us differently, treat us negatively, speak against us for Christians, then are we faithfully living out a godly life in Christ Jesus? A challenge, but also an encouragement. If we are facing this, then what a wonderful privilege to be associated with believers through history, believers around the world today, and with the Lord Jesus. Let's pray that we would be encouraged by that thought. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we do thank you that you love us. We thank you that your commands are not burdensome. They are good. It is a joy. It is a wonder. It is a privilege to live for you. It is difficult. Jesus said, the way is na- the, the gate is narrow and the path is difficult that leads to eternal life. And yet, his commands are not burdensome and his burden is is light. Father, please help us to walk this path faithfully, looking ahead, looking to what is to come, looking back at faithful brothers and sisters, and looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus and the joy he will bring. May we accept your word as your word, and would you keep us to the end? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.